0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Good evening, everybody. Uh, My name is uh, Professor Arthur Conagrave. I'm the Dean of Medicine here at the University of Sydney. So a big welcome to everybody uh, who's come out for this uh, Uh, lecture this evening, a lecture in the 21st century uh, medicine series. Uh, As its name implies, the lectures that we present in this series aim to be thought-provoking, look over the horizon, uh, and to speculate uh, and to provide some of the answers uh, for the new therapies um, of the 21st century and new approaches to uh, treatment of diseases that we haven't, in many cases, got a very good handle on. Um, I think the choice of uh, Professor John Maddock um, uh, is, uh, of course, very much at the forefront of of new approaches to diagnosis and management of diseases. It's a great pleasure uh, to welcome John uh, to um, present uh, his lecture in this series. As many of you all know, he's the executive director of the Garvin Institute. He is one of the foremost thinkers uh, in uh, the area of genomics, uh, and that's true both internationally and nationally. Uh, He's helping to shape the public debate here, um, and it really is a great pleasure, John, to have you with us. He's a former alumnus of the University of Sydney, and we're very proud of him, uh, of course. I'm going to hand over at this point to um, Professor Robin Jamison, who's the uh, head of the Faculty of Medicine Discipline of Medical Genetics, uh, to introduce John and then we'll of course enjoy John's lecture and we hope uh, that you'll join us uh, at the end of the lecture to ask John some of the questions that have been occurring to you uh, perhaps before the lecture and certainly during uh, the lecture and uh, and uh, we look forward very much to that discussion as well. So over to you Robin and thanks very much everybody, Welcome.
0: So thank you very much, Arthur. And it's a real pleasure to um, introduce uh, John Maddock uh, this evening. So um, I know John mostly through our work on the Sydney Genomics Collaborative through the um, Office of Health and Medical Research Program of New South Wales Health. But I just... um, Arthur did uh, ask me to let you know some of the other wonderful things that uh, John's been involved with as well. So he has made um, several seminal contributions to molecular biology, and particularly the one that he's most known about is uh, his uh, work in the understanding of the supposed junk part of the genome, which actually um, forms a very important regulatory uh, network in differentiation and development. So there's been lots of coverage of that work, um, nature, science, scientific America, new Scientist, you name it. Um, So I think it's great that we're um, having this lecture today um, from uh, John and to know also that he is an alumnus of the University of Sydney Uh, and he also um, did his postdoctoral studies in Monash University um, and also at the Baylor College in Houston, Texas. Um, And then he has worked um, in the CSIRO division of molecular biology in Sydney and then subsequently he was the foundation professor of molecular biology at the University of Queensland and then went on to establish the Institute for Molecular Biosciences also at the University of Queensland. uh, Before then, moving to become the executive director of the the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. And I can certainly say that uh, he has been a mover and shaker in the genomics arena uh, in health in New South Wales, across Australia, and of course across the world as well. So it's my real pleasure to invite uh, John to speak with us this evening uh, on his work on the translational impact of genomic medicine uh, and the healthcare system. Thank you very much, John.
2: Thank you, Robin. Uh, very kind introduction. And Arthur, thanks for the invitation. Um, I'm a bit of a missionary about this, so it's always great to be able to talk, particularly to the general public. And, and much of this lecture is pitched at, at the general public. So the cognoscenti in the audience, so I can see a few, just have to forgive that part of it. But I hope you find it interesting and entertaining. You know, we, and your comments about my work on the non-coding genome, which is 98% of the genome, by the way. Uh, it's not junk. Uh, it's just an information system that a mechanically minded world in the 1950s didn't understand. But it's the most gorgeous and sophisticated software suite in the world. It's, I think it's roughly the same size in, in, in bit terms as the full version of Microsoft Word. And yet it takes, as uh, a set of instructions, that takes all of us as a single cell at the point of fertilisation and produces something that can walk and talk. And it's just magnificent. And we don't yet understand it, but we're on the way, and I'll show you we're on the way. I, I thought, because I grew up in a cloning revolution like Robin, you know, we thought we were hot shots because we learned how to clone this gene or that gene. And I thought, uh, following the double helix, that the second half of the 20th century was, you know, the time of biology, but I was wrong. It was just the warm-up. It was just working out the technologies. This is the century of biology and medicine, and. Um, I'm starting to think, and perhaps this will become obvious at later stage of the lecture, that we are in the first stages over the next two or three decades of possibly the biggest social and economic history in the, the history of humans uh, because health and understanding <coughs> human biology, human diversity is probably going to be our most magnificent and, and important achievement. So I hope the images are... OK, they're, they're, they're nice here, this uh, sort of widescreen format, but the university's uh, pretty square, as you know. So the first the, um, so, uh, uh, so question is, why whole genome sequencing? And of course, um, I, I should have thrown a slide in just to, to, to say to people, you know, we, we've got 23 pairs of chromosomes, uh, one half from mum, one half from dad. If we got an X from dad, we're a girl. And if we've got a Y from dad, we're a boy. Uh, at least in conventional space, and but the other two, the other chromosomes, called the autosomes, and there's about um, three billion bits of information in those genome, in each haploid genome—one from mum, one from dad. Um, three billion—that's three thousand million—and about one point one percent of that, so one in a thousand bases is different between us, and that's basically what's responsible for the different differences between us as individuals. Now these pictures here, uh, pictures of uh, siblings, the ones on the edges are identical twins. The ones in the middle aren't, uh, but although they look like identical twins, they're sisters. And uh, some of you may recognise them. And I I leave them in. I want to make a point about identical twins and about human biology uh, uh, more deeply in a moment. But uh, just to remind you that we share with our siblings an average of 50% of the DNA from our parents. We get a random half from dad and random half from mum. But that's a distribution, and uh, it's a normal distribution. So some of us can share 10% with our sibling or 90% with our sibling. So in fact, uh, the ones that look like you or maybe act like you may have, in fact, more in common with you genetically than you think. So when you look into the faces of these individuals, and and, and we are talking about the beauty of humanity here, um, you see that they're look different, their eyes are different, their expressions are different. You can even start to see the personalities in their faces. And, um, and, that, and those differences, apart from scars we might have falling out of trees when we were kids, are essentially embedded in the sequence differences between us and our genomes. And, and, and our genome as a software suite is extraordinarily not only sophisticated but very robust because if you run the same program twice, you get a, what's called a phenocopy, like those two guys on the right. They're identical twins. So they don't look like me, they look like each other. So they've got the same program uh, from the same fertilised egg that's split early in embryogenesis, and, and uh, the program is pretty robust and reproducible. Now, I want to talk about these two blokes in a bit more detail, but um, just to uh, belabor the point, the variations in, in, in this information that we inherit from our ancestors, and by the way, there are mutations at every generation as well, so we carry new mutations or new variations, um, these variations determine not only our physical characteristics but to a significant extent our psychosocial our idiosyncrasies. They're also the, the, the basis of human genetic diseases and important determinants of risks for many um, other diseases, comp- complex diseases, cancers, neurological diseases, but including infectious diseases. In fact, um, if I were to infect you, I won't, but... Um, I can't, but with a 50% lethal dose of malaria or cholera, half of you will die, but it's not a random half. Uh, It's a half that actually is naturally susceptible to that particular infection. So susceptibility to infections is as much an inherited genetic trait as it is an infectious trait. And it's the interplay between the genome and the the pathogens actually determines whether we succumb. And if you look at the incident frequencies of death from diseases, you can see quite large differences in the instance of death from different diseases and that's got to do largely with the uh, genetic basis of our resistance mechanisms. Now let's talk about these two blokes because they're um, entertaining. <coughs> so um, sorry about the grainy picture, but this is taken from a uh, convention in um, uh, somewhere in the Midwest in the States uh, uh, some years ago now where identical twins who had been separated at birth um, were reunited uh, in a major convention. Now, those of us you of old, as old as I am will remember that in the 50s and 60s, it was not acceptable socially for women to be unmarried mothers. So many young women who became pregnant then, um, usually under social pressure um, and very reluctantly, uh, uh, had their kids put out for adoption. And in North America, it was the same as it was in Australia. Uh, but uh, many of these uh, kids were, some of them, I should say, were identical twins. And they were adopted out to different households. And years later, of course, times changed. These uh, children tracked their ancestry and their siblings and, um, and became a bit of a, uh, a club. And so these individuals, there's about 400 twin pairs, and, and there's a lovely BBC program on this, if you can go rooting around YouTube or whatever, on this particular event. Um, were uh, met up to celebrate um, their twinness but, but they had grown up separately and most of them had either never met each other or only met each other once or twice in their life because they had quite different life trajectories including these two blacks. So they're identical twins and I want you to have a good look at them. <coughs> uh, now one's a bit porky than the other, I'll give you that but other than that, uh, look at their glasses. Now these guys have grown up separately Look at their mustache and mustache. It's the same. Their belt. Look where their keys are hanging off the edge of their belt on the looper. And the way they're holding the beer can. The little pinky is in the same position underneath the beer can. Now many of them, I'm sure many of you have had the experience of seeing a child who does this in some funny way and say, oh gee, granddad used to do that. Our, our, our behavioural characteristics are much more uh, strongly genetically in, uh, inherited or influenced than we had thought. And one of the bizarre things that came out of this study, when they actually compared these twins, the psychosocial traits, these ones that had grown up separately, often in quite different socioeconomic circumstances, they were more like each other on the questionnaires than uh, twins that had grown up together, which is totally counterintuitive. The interpretation, which seems reasonable, is that uh, perhaps, you know, if you look, spend your life looking at yourself in the mirror, you're more inclined to, to, to you know, foster your independence, although that's a personality-dependent trait in itself. So, but if that's true, then it says that the twin studies, which have often been used to assess the, uh, the uh, genetic components of not only physical traits but psychosocial traits have actually underestimated the genetic contribution of those traits because of this pushback effect between the identical twins growing up together. In any case, uh, you know, through the 60s and 70s, we learned how to clone genes, and then we learned how to sequence genes, and the technology got better and better. And in 2001, uh, uh, the the world completed the first draft of the human genome sequence. This cost $3,000 million dollars to do. Mainly, it was mainly funded by the Americans. It was the Apollo Space Project, or the, the, the successor of the Apollo Space Project, and actually um, occupied about the same amount of budgetary um, uh, allocation, although it came in ahead of time and under budget because of the competition between the guy on the right of this photograph, Francis Collins, who's a guitar-playing Baptist minister who led the so-called public genome project, and the guy on the left, Craig Venter, who is a surfing, motorcycle-riding um, ex-Vietnam vet who led the, the private um, uh, sequencing effort, and neither side was going to let the other side win, so they both pushed very hard. It was a big deal. It was announced uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, as, uh, simultaneously by Prime Minister Blair and here President Clinton, uh, and, you know, a magnificent achievement because imagine a species that gets to a point in its, um, its maturity intellectual and technological design can actually read its own genetic inheritance. Unbelievable. You know, in 2,000 years from Rome we get to that point. Goodness knows where we're going to get to this century, but that was a magnificent achievement and a front cover of Time magazine and news all over the world. Now, this is a dry graph, but since then the genomic technology has evolved so quickly that it's outpaced the famous Moore's law of um, computing. This graph is a log scale on the left. So um, in 2001, the unit cost at that point in time of doing a single human genome was $100 million. Now, it declined exponentially following the Moore's Law, which the Moore's Law, by the way, says that roughly the computing power doubles every 18 months and the cost halves every 18 months. So it's a a log function. And it tracks at that sort of pace, which is pretty good, uh, doubling every 18 months of uh, capacity and and re- and consequent reduction in cost. Then, in two thousand and seven, it drops off the curve uh, because the technology changed. And um, uh, perhaps I should have put a sli- uh, slide in, but I just want to tell you very briefly how this works. The new technology: so you take a credit card size platform, and you have billions of holes in it, basically. And you drop billions of DNA molecules. Take the DNA from me, from a mouth swab or a blood sample, chop up in a million bits or zillion bits, and drop it into these holes, and then. It's copied in these holes with fluorescent chemicals, and you know that DNA is a double helix, and so you pull it apart. If it's A on this side, it's got to be T on this side. So in this reaction, they put a coloured T, and, and there's a high-resolution CCD camera sitting above this that's just measuring colours, red, red, blue, blue, green, etc., and converts that back into AGCTs and then reassembles this in the computer. So that's the state-of-the-art technology at the moment, although it's about to change again. And, um, uh, again, at the uh, risk of going over time, let's just tell you what the new technology is about. It's actually a membrane that's got protein pores in it, single-protein molecules that have got a hole in it. And the technology sucks the DNA through the hole and measures the electrical charge disturbance as the DNA strand goes through the hole. And each base has a particular signature, so you can do it sort of sonically. And that will probably bring the cost down to... $100 $100 or so, uh, which are less than Medicare-rebatable. Anyway, it dropped off the curve uh, in 2007. went hyper-exponential. And then in 2014, uh, the announcement was made uh, uh, that uh, the new equipment um, that was available to sequence the human genome for a base cost uh, of $1,000 US. So from $100 million to $1,000 in 15 years. Four- 13 years, excuse me. Amazing. The fastest technological revolution in history, and it hasn't finished. One of the reasons it hasn't finished is because this is the biggest market in the world, and I'll get to that at the end. But uh, just to give you a flavour, health is the largest, most important, and fastest growing industry in the world, and it's about to be completely transformed. And I can say with confidence, except for you holdouts out there, that every one of you will have your genome sequenced and be part of your health management in the next decade or two but I get ahead of myself. So <clears throat> we were lucky here in Sydney. Now we were, we'd been very active in the field. In fact, I'd had the pleasure of sailing with Craig Venter um, at, at some, one point, um, although I'm still recovering. Um, uh, but because we were very well known, the company America flew out to Sydney and asked us if they wa- we wanted to be the Garvin Institute, that is, one of the first five centres in the world to acquire the new equipment to sequence human genomes for $1,000? Because there's only one answer to that question. Uh, and we're really lucky that we had some fantastic supporters, particularly the Kinghorn Foundation, that provided the $10 million, and we were actually the first centre in the world to acquire this equipment and one of the first three to set it up. Uh, we've done over 16,000 human genomes and are doing over 1,000 a month, And I might mention, I think, uh, you'll see in the next few months the federal government will announce a very large program that will be national in scale that will build on what we've started here in Sydney. I think we're currently the fourth largest genome facility in the world, just over there in Darlinghurst. In any case, you need a lot of computing for this. I'm going to speed up now and and, and take you through the the health. Um, And we've got a lot of people working, not just uh, laboratory scientists but... and pathologists and clinical geneticists, but also bioinformaticians, software engineers, et cetera. So um, we've established this, and this is not a promo for this company, um, but uh, we've established a company called Genome.1. That's its URL, so if you've got nothing better to do later, just type Genome.1 into the computer and you'll see this image or something similar come up and you can navigate around it. Um, It's important to realise that whether you're working at the University of Sydney, which I love, by the way, I had a great time here as an undergraduate, uh, or the, in the Medical Research Institute, of our, one of our primary responsibilities is not just education or generation of knowledge, but just translation of that knowledge. And the way you translate knowledge is not to try to do it yourself, but rather to hand it over to an organisation that's dedicated to producing that good or service. It could be licensing a new therapeutic compound to a pharmaceutical company, it can take it through all the pharmaceutical trials, it could be... a Medical device company or, or or you start one your own and so we 've started this one, and um, it 's only the this the first company outside of north america that 's clinically accredited to do whole genome sequencing and analysis now it 's um, it's pretty simple in and out, but it 's the engine in between that 's uh, that 's sophisticated so Essentially, at this stage, and genomics is largely presently being used for diagnosis, but that's going to change very quickly. It's going to be used for prognosis. We'll get to that. But essentially, at this stage, and we work through the clinical community um, because they're the correct portal to the patient options, and they're also... um, They are the portal to the options coming out of this. So essentially we, you know, there's a, a clinical request to, to Genome 1 to do an analysis of somebody's genome for some purpose or other, and we return a report to that, um, that uh, commissioning physician uh, some point later. Now, though, so this is the sort of report on the right, but on the left here, and I'm not going to go through it in details, but you've got... Um, well, a whole bunch of processes, pre-test because the, the individual has to go and talk to the physician. There's counselling involved because a genomic test is much more complex than a simple genetic test. Uh, we're trying to standardise those procedures, they'll, they'll scale to the whole population. Then you've got to go into the sequencing area here. Um, this is incredibly um, complex as well because it's got to be barcoded, high, high um, reproducibility, NADA accreditation. Then into the at number three, the analysis, which is really the, the, um, the core of the operation. So you take the three bit bits of information and reduce it to something that's meaningful in uh, biological or medical space, and then you've got the post-analytical process of reporting back to the patient. Um, so to do this, <coughs> um, we've invested quite a lot of money in software development, and we have this particular program called SEAVE, which will take a whole genome sequence and produce a rank list of predicted damaged genes in a few minutes, which actually backends all the stuff because a clinician doesn't want to have to do that, they, you know, so we, we make it easy. And, and what we do, we don't do the diagnosis so much as give this information back to the clinician who's the domain expert, and that, that individual then looks at the information and then uh, uh, makes the... The right, uh, hopefully, the decisions in front of for the patient. By the way, it's called sieve because it was written and organised by a crazy Russian-American-New Zealand guy that we have. He grew up, born in Russia, uh, school in the United States, university in New Zealand. He's family kept moving. He looks like he's 16. This guy. He couldn't sell sieve. This is supposed to be sieving the mutations, but but we rather like sieve as a as a name. And we've also established. uh, uh, a portal, the first, we hope, of many around the country for uh, a clinical genomics unit at, um, at St Vincent's Hospital. Um, it's headed by Cathy Wu. I think Robin probably knows Cathy from, from Westmeat. Um, and uh, that's uh, providing the front end that uh, people can come and uh, ask questions about what this test means because we're actually laying out a lot of information about people or at least uh, in, in principle. Um, so the first... Uh, Area for, for application, of course, is the disease diagnostic. And I want to tell you some stories now, which actually perhaps be a little abstract, less abstract than what I've told you. So, you know, this this has changed, what, Robin, in five years, maybe? Five or eight? From So you, you imagine a situation, a child, and it's usually to do with child and birth defects, but it affects a lot of adults as well, as I'll show you, um, who is born with an obvious disability or develop, has developmental delay and has intellectual disability which shows up in the first months of life. And the, the, the poor old parents are, are distraught and unless the child has some standard symptoms like cystic fibrosis, and I'm a carrier, I'll get back to that later, um, you, you, you just don't know. So the clinicians, if they thought they had it might be this gene's damage, they would order the a per gene basis. But there are over 20,000 of these genes, and many, many, perhaps more than 5,000 now, have already been catalogued as having uh, associated with the disease. And many of these things, like intellectual disability, as I'll show you in a couple of cases, is is no idea what the gene is that's causing this this child's problem. And (coughs) um, this is incredibly common because even though mutations in these individual protein-cating genes are, are individually rare, Collectively, two percent of all births in this and every other country uh, suffer, the children suffer a serious uh, physical and or intellectual disability due to a mutation in a simple protein coding gene. <coughs> Excuse me. It's what I call catastrophic component damage. I might just say parenthetically, our 20,000 protein coding genes are much the same as the 20,000 protein coding genes in the one millimetre long worms out there in the soil. They've hardly changed in evolution. It's actually the, the junk DNA which is organising these Lego parts, which are pretty common across biology in different ways. But if you damage one of these Lego parts, like hemoglobin, for example, you can't carry oxygen, you've got thalassemia, you're in serious trouble. If you can't, There's a chloride ion transport. If that doesn't work, you have cystic fibrosis. You're in serious trouble. So 2%, now that's 1 in 50 births. Think about that, and, and, and this will come back in a moment uh, when we talk about preconception screening. And of course, um, uh, uh, ultrasound has given prospective parents a very good insight into their baby before it's born, but I think there's still that sense that when the baby pops out that you want to make sure that it's happy and healthy. Every, every family wants a, a healthy baby. 2% is incredibly high. And in fact, it turns out that about um, 8 to 10% of all of us in the population will suffer a simple genetic problem that will get us, cause us to go to hospital at some point in the future. I'll talk about that in a minute. But it's very difficult to diagnose. It has been very difficult to diagnose these things, and clinicians are, uh, left to, used to be left to make informed guesses, and these were quite expensive tests. Now, with genomic analysis, we replace this whole process with a single test, which is relatively agnostic. We're not trying to guess which gene might be damaged. We're just looking for which genes are damaged and which ones might match the, uh, uh, the, the condition of the child that we're looking at. And this has been extraordinarily successful. Our initial data and data flowing in from around the world says that we, depending on the sort of disability, that we can straight up diagnose accurately about fifty to sixty percent of all these disorders from uh, this single genomic test, Um, which uh, and we won't worry about the niceties. What's called exome sequencing, which is much cheaper but uh, a little bit less efficient. But the important thing about this is that uh, it, it avoids expensive diagnostic odysseys. Now, again, imagine you're the parent with a, the child or the doctor sitting with that, those parents. The, and the paediatricians have told me this, and um, because I've asked them. They said, well, you can't send the baby home. You just can't. So they order tests, this test, that test, that test, and they know in their heart of hearts that the tests are not likely to give an informative insight into what's wrong with that child. You'll see why in a moment, but, but they do it because you can't just say, sorry, go home. And this costs ten to $20,000 uh, in Australia before the hospital, the doctor and the family in physical, financial, emotional exhaustion call it quits and say, look, we don't know what's wrong with Johnny, we just have to make the best of it and try and ameliorate his condition with steroids or something. It also informs productive treatments, as I'll show you just in, very, in a moment, and... And assist families in future reproductive family, uh, planning because many families who suffer these uh, severe dis- severely disabled children don't have any more children because they're so scared it will happen again. And of course, once you know what's wrong, it's relatively easy to avoid it. So um, I just want to give you this, uh, this two, first of two cases. And this is online, um, the Beery twins. So just type it into Google Beery twins. And this is a picture of them uh, when they're about eight or 10. And you can read. I'll just read a little bit. Uh, the twins suffered seizures, balance coordination problems, vomiting, missed developmental <coughs> milestones, kept getting worse. In the first four years of life, had over 80 tests done. Nobody could give us answers. Continued to spiral downward, losing motor abilities. Couldn't uh, by 11 o'clock. She couldn't walk, sit up, to swallow food. Eyes would roll around. Hands would tremor, etc. And getting worse and worse. Now, there's several lessons embedded in this. Um, the first is um, that the parents, or at least the mother, actually diagnosed the problem in part before the docs did. And if you want a good read, uh, I recommend a book called The Patient Will See You Now. It's a good title, The Patient Will See You Now, by Eric Topol, T-O-P-O-L. He's a cardiologist from San Diego. The US government's just giving him hundreds of millions of dollars because the guy's a visionary. And every chapter of this book talks about the future of the healthcare system. And one chapter's on genomics, another one's on smart devices, we'll get to that. But one chapter is on the fact that in many cases, I actually have two personal experiences of this with friends. The parents actually know more about the conditions uh, their kids than the treating physicians do. And the reason they do is because they've got all of the motivation, all of the time and the energy, and they're many of them very intelligent people, and they track it down. And in both the cases I'm going to tell you about, the parents actually figured it out before the docs, at least in part. So the mother in this case... uh, uh, looking at the symptoms, I uh, thought that at least one of the children, turns out the same as have a problem, but the phenotype was slightly different, at least one of the children had uh, some, a form of dystonia called Sigawas dystonia, which is a fancy name for a lack of a dopamine, which is an important neurotransmitter in the brain, so your brain doesn't work properly. And so they gave a dietary supplement to, I think it was the girl, and she got somewhat better, but not completely better. Uh, so it sort of was half right. Uh, but anyway, they were early uh, uptake, uh, they, and they, uh, technology uptake, and this was the, the publication that flowed. And the reason I put such a boring slide up is because, first of all, the last author here, Richard Gibbs, he's AC, he's one of Australia's most famous sons, he's country boy from Colac, Victoria, and he runs the Genome Sequencing Centre at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, which is by far the biggest medical centre in the world. And this is a sort of overly modest uh, academic paper. So if you read this, um, it says they they found mutations in this gene called seriapton reductase, which causes a decrease in this cofactor, which is required for the enzymes that synthesise the neurotransmitters, dopamine and serotonin. So mum was partly right, but this was upstream and affected both these, and you've heard of serotonin, so feel good. Transmitter supplementation of the L-dopamine therapy, which the kids were already on thanks to mum, with this other compound, a serotonin precursor, resulting in clinical improvements in both twins. Clinical improvements in both twins. You know, I think, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. This is the children then. This is them now. They're, they're finished school, they're at college, they're running marathons, and their life has been completely rescued by this. Because getting under the hood, how would you know what was wrong with those two just looking at them in the clinic and you did the genome sequence? And this is the family now. And I show that because it's rescued that family uh, for a life of uh, happiness and because, uh, you know, this, the divorce rates go through the roof in the families that have severely disabled children because the emotional and financial stress is so high. So that's great. I'm going to give you this example too from the um, kids' hospital at Randwick. What we did recently and this is Alan uh, and he was six years old at this point and this is a year or so ago and he was chronically in intensive care so this is him lying in intensive care at the children's at Ranwick with his mother. She slept with him because he was there so often and the reason he was in intensive care is because he's bleeding to death internally. He has no platelets which are the things required for blood clot. He's like to be poisoned with rat poison and nobody knew why. And they didn't know if he would live week to week. And, of course, intensive care is is fairly expensive as well. Um, So we sequenced the the boy, and we discovered that he lacked a protein in his immune system on T cells. That'll make sense to some of the biologists in the audience. Which was giving him a strange form of autoimmunity, uh, which was destroying his platelets. So he had a... uh, You know, his immune system was attacking his body. Now, we still don't know why this lack of this protein would have had that effect, but because we identified it, we were able to say, well, it's in this pathway, and there actually had been a drug um, called abatacept, which had been developed to target another element in the same pathway, another protein, actually for transplantation purposes. Um, so uh, Chris Goodnow and colleagues over at the uh, Garvin, who did this work, figured that it might work. Even though it wasn't targeted, the same protein was the same pathway. It might just compensate. So uh, they got emergency ethical approval to put young Alan on this drug because it hadn't been safety tested in, in children. It had only been used for transplantation in adults. And uh, so he was pinned on the drug. And, and, and I'm not exaggerating now. Four weeks later, he went home, waving his uh, lightsaber. And that's him now. <laughs> uh, he's back at school, uh, and that's his mum and dad there, wonderful Turkish immigrants, and Dad will feature later in this story uh, in a lovely uh, circle of life. But, um, you know, just to be, to be able to do that, it's not only heartwarming, but, uh, and, and since, uh, finally our molecular biologists are good for something, but, uh, <laughs> but also it, uh, is, it has a tremendous effect on the economics of the system. The, the savings from this little boy alone would probably justify the whole program. In fact. The English National Health Service have just announced that they are going to make uh, genome sequencing for children with undiagnosed serious disabilities the standard of care in England. And we're in uh, discussions with the New South Wales Health Department about introducing that through Robin and colleagues in, in, in New South Wales. So um, this has come very quickly. And uh, the, when I say fine-ass molecular biology is good for something, I, 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 I kind of mean it in the sense that uh, the cycle between conceptual advance and practical application is getting shorter and shorter you know every time you, when you use your iPhone or your smartphone or your GPS system think about the century and a half of physics and electronics that sits behind those things the satellites up in the sky it's not magic that's science that's technology and you have to get to a certain level of understanding sophistication before it actually is ready for the street this is ready for the street now and this is this is a good example. So it's now the standard of care, uh, becoming the standard of care. is one of the pioneers, Stephen Kingsmore, in the, in the United States. But it's just the beginning. One in ten people, as I said, actually have a so-called rare disease or a monogenic mutation that will affect their health at some point in their life. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. The, the first, though, I'll just mention pretty quickly um, the, initial, uh, the preconception screening. You know. Um, One in 50 couples... One in 50 babies, sorry, which means about one in 15 couples are actually at serious risk for having a genetically disabled child. And I think this will become the standard of care very quickly. And I'll tell my own story briefly now. When I had my genome sequenced, I discovered to my surprise that I was a carrier for cystic fibrosis. I have the Irish gene, the G551D. Robin knows what that means. And uh, there's no family history. Uh, Mum was of Irish ancestry, so I presume it came through her... And if I did the math, there's only a 1 in eight chance it would have popped up in the numbers anyway. Now, my, my wife is largely Irish, a dash of Portuguese. She's a 1 in 20 or so chance of being a carrier as well. We've got two beautiful boys, but I don't know if we dodged a bullet or not. You know, because if she was a carrier, we had a 1 in 4 chance of having a severely disabled child who would live a life of misery and have an early death, although the treatments for cystic fibrosis have got much better. So if I said to you, young people in the audience, you know, planning to have a child, for $1,000 and it will be much less shortly, we can do a test on you and a test on you and just tell you whether you've got any damaged genes in common and therefore whether you've got a very high chance or a low chance, not zero because there are new mutations, but a low chance or a high chance. If you have a one in four chance of having a child with cystic fibrosis because we're both carriers, well, um, your choice, but we recommend IVF where you can actually test the embryo and I have actually been in discussions, very preliminary ones I might hasten to add, with the National Disability Insurance Agency about the effects of this on the forward projections on the NDIS of the economy of the, of the taxpayer. So I think this will become fairly standard because I don't think there's any, everybody loves their child, it doesn't matter you know, how exasperating they are or whatever, but, but everybody wants to start off with a child that's at least physically and, and, and mentally healthy. Um, Cancer risk and cancer diagnosis is the other big area I want to just mention, and we were at the Garvin Institute and my old institute in Queensland uh, involved in the International Cancer Genome Consortium, where at the time, five or six years ago, the technology was cheap enough to think about sequencing a lot of cancers. It was much more expensive than it is now, but still. And we picked on, uh, well, we, we chose or allocated internationally pancreatic and ovarian cancers. And what we discovered was that everybody, what everybody else discovered, and forgive this uh, abstract graph, but each colour here represents a different mutation which causes cancer. So the essential finding of this, and you can see the kaleidoscope of colours, you know, for pancreatic cancer or gastric cancer. Some cancers, like um, breast cancer, have more, um, you know, sort of major mutations occupy a significant proportion. But essentially, it turns out that cancer is just cancer. There's no such thing as gastric cancer or pancreatic cancer, except that's where it popped up. And so um, each of these mutations is, is, is causing the cancers, but there's a spectrum of them in pancreas which is fairly lethal for other reasons. And there are different drugs available to treat some of these mutations. So. You, you need to know, not just looking down at the microscope at the cellular pathology, but also get a genome analysis done on the cancer to know what is the driver mutation of that cancer and, therefore, what is going to be the correct drug to use. Um, so um, so we, we, we all know about the BRCA genes, the so-called Angelina Jolly genes, and there's another one that affects uh, colon cancer. But in most other cases, the, can- the, 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 the mutations that cause cancer are fairly universal. And so, for example, and this will be the new classification, it won't be uh, where the tissue... The tissue origin is still relevant because of the surgical and other options. But what people really want to know is what is the mutation and what, therefore, is the matching drug. I was talking to uh, uh, senior advisors of the, the health minister the other day. I think this is going to be a big problem in a year or two because the data, despite the scepticism of the oncologists... The data is now showing very clearly that if you actually identify the mutation causing your cancer, as opposed to just saying, oh, it's grade four prostate, the mutation, and there's a drug that has been developed uh, to treat that particular mutation, that the extension of survivability is over twofold. And the numbers coming out of well-managed health systems in the United States are saying there's actually a 20% reduction in costs, even though these drugs are quite expensive because of other advantages, which I don't have time to go into. So. Um, and I'll just give you a quick example. For, um, uh, 15% of breast cancers are caused by mutations in a gene called HER2, for which a drug, anybody antibody called Herceptin, has been developed. It's reasonably effective. 8% of colon cancers are caused by the same mutation. 3% of pancreatic cancers are caused by that mutation. So you now repurpose Herceptin to treat pancreatic cancer or colon cancer in the subset that have that same mutation, even though the drug was developed firstly to... The same is true for the drugs that were developed to uh, treat uh, what's called BCR-ABLE translocations in leukaemia. So this is going to cause some big troubles in, me- in medicine, uh, not just for the oncologists, but cellular pathologists who've ruled the roost in cancer are now going to be a way station, just say, oh, that's cancerous, we better send it over the road to the genome facility to work out what the treatment is. The patients are going to demand it. and. Uh, So there's going to be big employment uh, dislocations, I think, coming up. And it reminds me just to mention that um, over the Prince of Wales, the people who used to do um, uh, cytogenetics, most of them are now uh, idle or unemployed because most of those cytogenetics were done to look for Down syndrome, trisomies, uh, usually in older women. But to everyone's surprise, and you probably don't know this, so forgive me for rambling on a bit, but... Uh, to everyone's surprise, uh, it turns out that 6 to 8% of all the DNA circulating in a pregnant woman's bloodstream is coming from the baby. So you can actually just take a blood sample and do a genetic analysis on the baby. And you can do it to pick up the trisomies. It's actually more accurate than the old tests that used to put a needle into the uterus hope to get a, a cell from the baby they could look at under the microscope. So, and I'm told by the obstetricians here in Sydney that 90, over 90% of all the pa- patients that they see are opting for the $500 baby DNA test. And uh, they're only using it for trisomies at the moment because that's technically fairly simple, but already there are publications showing whole genome analysis of the baby uh, from the mum's blood, and with no threat to the baby. So if you were pregnant and they said, well, you know, you've got a a low chance of having a trisomy, but, you know, for $500 you can check, you'd probably do it, and most people do. And think about that. When you see the photographs of uh, uh, the bloke, I'm going to show you at the end of the picture, at the end of this story. So uh, we um, actually, very active, this is David Thomas, uh, one of the, who runs a cancer centre, um, who's a sarcoma expert. He's actually getting a lot of traction with the federal government now to use genome sequencing to understand rare cancers. Rare cancers are a bit like rare genetic diseases. They're not rare at all. 30% of all cancers are not the standard breast or prostate or colon cancers, they're rare cancers caused by the same mutations that the other ones are. They actually account for 50% of all deaths. So we've now got a big program to actually sequence um, um, kids with... Rare, uh, sorry, people with rare cancers. And in this particular case, there's a report in The Australian recently. This is one of the ladies that participated in this program, and when we sequenced her um, cancer, we were able to identify the drug, and she's responded brilliantly to that. Um, and uh, the other thing that David's done in conjunction with Manny Ballinger at our place uh, is to use genomics to predict cancer risk. So David said to me a year or two ago, and he's quite a thoughtful, considered man, he said, I think I can predict, we can predict who will never get cancer and who is certain to get cancer from their genome sequences. Because the genes that are damaged that cause cancer, um, you know, they're, they're involved in our normal growth and development. Now, if we have... and Normally, you've got to damage both copies of the genes before you lose the control on, on growth and development and get the tumour to grow. But if you inherit one damaged copy from a parent, you've only got in one cell in your body to have the other one damaged by a chemical damage or cosmic radiation or something, and you're, you're, you're in trouble. So he said, I think we can do this. So in conjunction with the National Cancer Institute in the United States, which was published just a few weeks ago... They used genomic information to predict people who were at high risk for cancer because they already carried damage to a gene called P53, which is probably the most powerful uh, cancer-causing gene. And then they said, well, we predict these people at risk, and they gave them a high-resolution whole-body MRI because unlike BRCA or Lynch syndrome, which is colon cancer, the other mutations are tissue agnostic. Ten percent of these people had cancers they were not aware of. One guy had two separate ones. This was pre-symptomatic and pre-metastatic, at a stage early enough to be able to surgically remove them. Curative, because early surgery is still best. So you can imagine, um, I'll pick on Arthur at this point, and say, Arthur, you know, mum's sitting there, and the doc says, look, you know, Arthur's a fine-looking boy, and he's, he's pretty good, except he's at high risk for cancer. I know you're going to worry, but I don't want you to. What I want you to do is bring Arthur in every year for a complete checkup. We'll pick it up early and he'll be fine. He'll be fine. And in fact, uh, I might just say parenthetically again, we, uh, on this call we got to the Lions International are now just giving us $4 million to sequence every child with cancer. And it's probably going to be their next global uh, project centered based here in Sydney, but in Canada and the US and India and other, Korea and other places. So um, the adverse drug reactions I want to just mention to you, I'm hoping tonight, even if I go over time, I know I'm not going to at this rate, uh, I'll have to speed up, I guess, but I like to tell stories. I, I'm rather hoping that you'll go home and say, gee, guess what I learned tonight? I think that's the best lecture or something that you can take away. And so this is one of those ones, I think. So um, you'd be uh, not surprised that prescriptions are fairly standard dose, but in fact, uh, there's a lot of adverse drug reactions, some of which can be life-threatening. And in total, uh, they account for over 100,000 deaths a year in the United States, and 7.5% of all hospital admissions in this country are due to adverse reactions to prescription medications. Not methamphetamines, prescription drugs. That's a hell of a lot. That's one in 15 people admitted to hospital due to an adverse reaction to something they've been prescribed. And the reason, by the way, is very simple. It's because we've all got a different set of enzymes or variants of enzymes in our liver, mainly, that detoxify com- foreign compounds. And, and they do it to more or less the extent officially. So coffee is a good example. Some of us can have a double shot and go straight to bed. Others are wired for 24 hours. That's got to do, not with your reaction to caffeine, but how quickly the body gets rid of the caffeine. So if, if it's very slow to get rid of, the caffeine stays in your bloodstream and, case of drugs, can just build up to toxic levels because the drug dose has been pitched at the average. Some drugs are, are also useless. Oh, by the way, another one, chocolate. The reason you can't give chocolate dogs is because they can't detoxify the, the uh, toxic compounds. We can, luckily. Uh, and it's not just uh, on the toxic end of the spectrum. Most drugs will have a large number of people just don't respond at all to them because they clear them so quickly. So. Um, there's hundreds of these gene-drug interactions known, more and more, uh, and we can now predict and avoid about half of them automatically from a whole genome sequence. So this is, again, go, it goes to the health economics of this. We're not now doing a, a genome sequence just to diagnose a rare disease or a cancer, but we can actually find out who's at risk for uh, blood clots because they have a factor of live Leiden mutations, who's at risk for emphysema, who's at risk or shouldn't be treated with this class of drugs because they're going to be toxic or useless, all of that comes out of one single test as you get the analytics. So um, there are a lot of applications. I think I'll, I'll move quickly. And The first is in research, and this is going to transform uh, research, but the one I like the best is exceptional responders. Every branch of medicine has exceptional responders, and uh, I want to tell you um, I think, I, I think you're enjoying this. I'll, I'll tell you kids stories. But we sequenced a woman in Melbourne recently who was an, had an abscopal response. Do you know what an abscopal response is? See, so I always get one up on the medicos by doing this. It's actually a medical term. It's a rare, it's a documented, rare um, response to in cancer where a local radiation treatment results in a systemic cure. So, in this case, this woman in Melbourne, 15 years ago, she had stage four metastatic melanoma, bone metastases. She was not going to survive. She was treated for a big tumour in her head by radiation, presumably to reduce pain or give her a few extra months of life. And in the weeks and months that followed, all of her tumours disappeared. At the same time, she got Crohn's disease, which is a rare form of autoimmune disease. So it looked like an immunological reaction, but nobody knew why. So we sequenced her. it turns out that she's heterozygous. That means she's got one good copy, one bad copy for one of the most famous genes in the immune system. Can't tell you what it is because we're putting some intellectual property protection around this, but it's actually outside the current um, immune checkpoint inhibitor pathway. It's a totally new pathway for treating cancer because it's the cell surface receptor It's as easy as falling off a log to make a drug that can block that and make ordinary people susceptible. So what's happened in her is releasing the tumour antigens by radiation, releasing the circulation, has prompted a titchy immune system to react and then clean up the rest. And she's hale and hearty 15 years later. So that's an N of 1. Um, we're also looking at uh, patients in diabetes that do or don't re- suffer renal failure, you may know, with type 1 diabetes. Some people just crash later in life with renal failure and uh, vascular problems everything. And others are fine, and uh, we think we know why, because we've been sequencing the two. Uh, It Looks like secondary variations in kidney function genes might be responsible. Uh, And the same thing applies to people, individuals uh, that um, have different sorts of disease or respond differently to drugs in these diseases. So I'll keep moving. But the end game is one universal genetic test. Whole genome sequencing of the entire population and This will create a new data ecology, I want to talk about this briefly, that that has the genomic data, high resolution genetic data with clinical data and things that is consulted and uh, routinely interrogated as new information comes to hand from research analysis Uh, and it's consulted um, not only by health professionals at the coalface but the people's health system managers which would lead to the transition of medical practice from the art of crisis management to the science of good health. And this is the revolution that we're facing in the next 20 years. And I think we have a very good chance here in Australia, particularly in Sydney, of actually leading this and the economic consequences that come from it. So it's this area of what's called prognostic or wellness genomics because virtually all conditions have genetic components. And uh, we're we're teasing these out. I'm going to move quickly because I don't want to go too much over time, but... um, If you do a genome sequence, we can not only start to get better correlations between genetic variation and our present and future health, but also uh, incipient uh, conditions like hemochromatosis. So the the last paragraph there, you may or may not know, hemochromatosis is an iron overload disease. Kieran Perkins has. it. It's very common. Uh, It has the highest allelic frequency of any genetic disease in the population. Many people are undiagnosed because the main symptom is lethargy. And so those kids that just sits around is lazy. Maybe he's not lazy. Maybe he just doesn't feel that well. He just doesn't know it because he's always felt bad. Here's another story for you. Barber poles. Now, barber poles are red and white, right? Ever wondered why they're red and white? Yeah? Well, white's for the shaving cream. The red's for blood. And in, the, in Britain in the 19th century, the barbers used to offer not only a service of trimming your beard or your hair, whatever it was, but also bleeding. So imagine, you go and see the barber in, in East London, you know, uh, and the bloke says, you, 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 you want to bleed? So, what's that? So, oh, well, we put leeches on you and take a bit of blood out, and a lot of people feel better. So you know, and imagine, they're offering this as a service, because it's so common for people to feel better after being sucked on by leeches. So you say, well, I'll give it a go, mate. You know. So you go back next time, and he says, do you want to do it again? That no, didn't do much for me. But it does enough for enough people. They routinely offer it as a service. That's how common hemochromatosis is. It's very easy to treat by bleeding, not by leeches. We don't do it that way. But, uh, but it's left untreated that individuals have a high uh, risk of um, liver cirrhosis and carcinoma later in life. So we can do a whole test to do this. So we started a, f- a feature at Genome One, and it's actually now live. It's actually being offered at the moment through executive health services because it's a little bit pricey, but we're cutting our teeth on this, and we are, we've got the nuns watching us over the road, uh, so we're moving into public goods space as quickly as possible. Um, and, and I might say the reason we... So it costs about $6,000 to do the, the sequencing plus the full analysis to give you a wellness check uh, against... us. I'll show you um, several... Well, several hundred genes. Um, But if you accept the proposition, nobody debates this really, that in 20 years' time everybody's genome sequence will be part of the medical records, and it'll be consulted by your primary healthcare physician every time you walk in there, because they say, you know, your blood pressure's up, I want to give you this drug, but gee, I can't give you that one, I want to adjust the dose based on your pharmacogenomic profile, and that'll all be done by analytics in the sky. So what we're doing uh, with relatively well-to-do individuals here is just cutting our teeth on getting the, 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 the modules for this. And every month we write new modules that connect genetic variation with some sort of medically uh, um, interesting or relevant condition. So we, we announced that recently. There's um, only, only two or three places in the world we can get this. And we're looking at disease risk, you look at the lower left here, and um, drug responses... Disease risks, we're looking at uh, 49 conditions, 230 genes, and these include, Chris, uh, wherever you are, uh, a number of genes involved in cardiovascular risk as well as cancer risk, and other genes that uh, where a damage to the gene might have some impact on your present or future health, as well as drug response. And what we're finding is that many people are not at heightened risk for cardiovascular disease or cancer, but everybody's got some medications they should not take. It's just amazing, Uh, and and some that they shouldn't take because they're useless. So that's called The Story of You. We give you a book, and, uh, and this is just, I think, the portent of things to come. It also is changing the whole nature of clinical trials, and I think it will radically reduce the cost. I was discussing it today with uh, a colleague, Thomas Barlow, um, of, of clinical trials and the cost of drugs to the community because many, um, we can now use genomics to, to stratify the populations. Uh, a common experience in drug trials is that you know, phase one is safety. Phase two is kind of safety and first efficacy, and a common experience is in phase two that some people respond magnificently, but most don't. So there's not enough efficacy for the drug companies to, to go on to do the you know, huge phase three trials. But if you can sequence those individuals and work out why those ones that responded well responded and then repeat a phase two B with people with that genotype, then you've rescued the drug for the people who are going to respond to it, and you've guaranteed almost that the phase three trials will be terminated early, not because they're damaging, but because they're so successful. So that's going to change a lot, and we've got a new ecology, um, um, close to done, um, emerging, where uh, an individual will not only have a clinical record, but also their genome sequence will go into an integrated genotype phenotype correlation database, That'll go into diagnosis, prognosis, but also generate new knowledge as we see the correlations, and that will feed very much into population health and how the health system is managed. We've also got discovery genomics, and this is, i just mentioned briefly because Robin was part of this, but uh, the state government's been magnificent in supporting some of these programs. uh, We're going to talk mainly about the Medical Genome Reference Bank, where we've sequenced thousands of individuals who've got to 80 years of age without any uh, cancer, cardiovascular disease, any dementias, or whatever. Uh, as a sort of worldly uh, reference cohort. The one in the middle here is the one that uh, has really been fantastic in engaging cl- oops, clinicians all around the, c- the state, and then David's uh, Cancer Risk Program. i just mentioned this briefly, which has been run with colleagues here at, um, at um, Fort Sachs Institute and down in Melbourne with the Asprey. We've sequenced most of these things. We're using a new data portal that's being developed by Genomics England. Genomics England, we collaborate with very closely. they have just about to announce they're about to sequence a million genomes in England uh, and just an extraordinary uh, initiative by the English government, mainly because Prime Minister Cameron was so far-sighted. And, uh, but this is where we're working with them to develop platforms for all this data because it's one thing to say, that oh, we've diagnosed this poor little boy and we've uh, got the right drug for him. It's another thing to do this at scale. We've got millions of genomes, so that's where we're going. So we have to build the infrastructural platforms, the computing, storage, um, you know, petabytes of data. And so we're working with Genomics England to do that in a way that's scalable, but also um, uh, gets the economies of scale across national boundaries. Uh, Genome warehouses take hundreds of thousands, millions of genomes. And also we realise that this new software we've developed um, that genomic sequence is not very useful without um, clinical information, but most uh, even where it's in electronic health records from docs, it's usually free text because they've recorded it or something. Arthur, you probably know better. But they, they're not using standard ontology. So we've written new software which will automatically convert uh, uh, physicians' records in electronic health records into uh, machine-readable ontologies. And we've just uh, partnered with one of the biggest HMOs in the United States to do this. They've given us a million dollars to co-develop it. It not only involves automatic conversion of clinical terms into computer-readable terms, but also has this self-phenotyping option because many people actually have a lot to know, know a lot about their conditions, and even if they're uh, not quite as accurate as the trained physicians, that information is extraordinarily valuable. And, and this is a new social ecology I want to mention very briefly. The ecology of this precision healthcare revolution is not just genomic information. You know, it's not just clinical grade acquisition of, um, uh, of, of uh, phenotypic information. There's, there's data standards, there's incorporation of data from biomonitoring devices, other health data, et cetera. And this is um, just the, the, the deliverable here. There, we're going to have millions of genomes, but the genomic data is really sterile without phenotypic information. Uh, the phenotypic information, if we can bring that together, and the government's doing this through the Australian Digital Health Agency, they've given them almost $500 million to pull this together. It will be fantastic on its own because there's so much information you can pull out of those uh, data. But it's very much empowered by the ability of genomics to identify the molecular basis of the underpinning variation and for population stratification. So millions of genomes accompanied by, imagine, millions of clinical and other data sets will enable a multi-dimensional orthogonal queries, both direct and agnostic, independently of the reasons for collecting the data in the first place, using machine learning and artificial intelligence. If anybody's a fan of Little Britain, you know that scene where the travel agent says, computer says no, you know? Well, I dream of the day I walk into the office and switch the computer on and knows I'm coming and uh, says, good morning, John. Guess what I found overnight? <laughs> out there searching for the patterns, and, and I'm semi-serious. So we've got to untangle... This is for the cognizant more just to, to uh, let people know we do appreciate that human biology is more complex than just a simple genetic variation. It plays into, in all sorts of ways, with environmental factors. There's variable penetrance of genes which may or may not have environmental factors. So we're going to be able to disentangle this. The data ecology is going to be extraordinary because we're not just going to have data from genomes or clinical records, we're going to have data from you and me in real time. And, and we, we need a standard pipeline for this with standardised consent, clinical data, new analytics, machine learning algorithms, etc. So um, this is where it's going. It's not... And this is where medical research is going. You know, again, perhaps to editorialise, for those of you who are not in the business, uh, the only way we've made progress in understanding human biology is really through genetics genetics discovers and biochemistry explains. And most of what we know about cell division and the cell cycle and the genes that are damaged in cancer comes from studying yeast of all things. And most of what we know about development and the genes that cause developmental disorders like cancer come from studying fruit flies of all things. Now we're studying humans, you and me, at high resolution genetic data from our genomes and high resolution phenotypic data from clinical data and other sources. this is just a bunch of pretty pictures, but the, blokes, the bloke on the right... Now, remember what I said about prenatal screening. So this bloke here on the left, his name is Sabatini. I recommend, uh, really do recommend that if you go onto YouTube and just have to type in genome and face, you'll probably pop up first hit will be this guy, Sabatini, who works for Craig Venters Institute, you know, the, the mad surfing... He drives Harley around the mountains in Queensland occasionally. Uh, company in San Diego. Uh, so, um, what they've done in this company called Human Longevity Institute, and their business model is to charge people ten or twelve thousand dollars to come and get genomed and blood pressured and MRI'd and everything else, and it all goes into a computer. So they put ten thousand genomes in the computer and ten thousand photographs of those people, and then put. Mr. Dr. Sabatini's genome into the computer and asked the computer to predict his face. That's not in the right-hand side. That's what the computer came up with. Now, the beard is fake because he wasn't prepared to shave for the exercise, but but that's virtually a delicate priority. And you may have noticed in the Australian last year the story that some of the security and police services in Australia are already importing the software. Now, it won't stand up in court, but you can imagine if you've got a... Uh, a blood or, say, semen sample from a crime scene, you can actually say, gee, that's what this individual looks like. You can rule out the red-headed Irishman and go for that person. So this has got tremendous um, ramifications, but it it says that the power of machine learning, this is all that machine learning uh, can do. And if a 10,000 training set of genomes can predict faces with this sort of accuracy, and by the way, we, we, we're planning to take three-dimensional photographs of everybody we, we sequence. not to do this so much as I, I think our, our personalities and our faces. and I'm really keen to try and connect some dots there. Look at the data here. It um, predicted his height to within uh, a centimetre. It's far better than any genome-wide association studies for the Cognoscenti. Uh, it even predicted his age pretty accurately because you can use epigenomic signatures to predict age, there's a correlation between methylation patterns and age. The only thing that got wrong was his weight. Of course, the computer wasn't told that he lived in the United States. (coughs) (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to integrate genomic information with all sorts of other Fitbit information. I can tell you many of us in this room, including me, will be wearing underskin devices within the next five years. There are companies in California, that devices sit in the soft tissue of your thumb and measure your blood uh, sugar concentration, insulin levels, or uh, a range of things. They all go up into the cloud in real time. And maybe back to your treating physicians so they'll know that Mrs. Jones is a bit, you know, a bit demented, actually took her pills. And to do this, we need a lot of analytics and machine learning. We've, uh, we've uh, partnered with Faith Venkatesh, who's a genius. I could tell you stories about what she does. She's, she's uh, just amazing. Have her to talk sometime, Arthur. She's gorgeous. Um, uh, to do this. And, uh, and the Alan's father, I told you, he'd pop up later in the story. He's an artificial intelligence expert. He's quit with work with the bank and comes, has come to work with us to help change the future. So we're going to have a revolution that's going to be around not only... The data, but also your smartphone and the devices, and you will carry your personal records, we think on the phone, because the social revolution says this is my data, it 's private and to, to do that we 're working with a startup company here in Sydney called Enome, which is using very advanced applications of blockchain technology to fragment the data in a million bits so that it can never be reassembled by anybody without your permission without the right keys. And uh, this is the second last slide,. Nothing. Gee, I have gone too long. Um, I wanted just to show you, for the, for the hardheads, uh, that this is from McKinsey Global. Now, McKinsey's is a you know a very um, well-respected econometric agency, and they rank next-generation genomics as the seventh of the major disruptive technologies on the planet. And they don't really, uh, I think, take into account the full effect on, on health. But in any case, the, they're estimating that the impact in just in eight years' time. Eight years' time across the world will be between 0.7 and 1.6 trillion dollars to economies. And I think Australia has that once in a generation chance to be a leader in this area, and not only to transform the health of our community, but also to develop the analytics that we might be able to export uh, uh, through Asia, et cetera, because I can tell you we're well ahead of uh, even Japan and, and Korea in this, um, although the Chinese are, uh, are running hard. So I don't think I'll read this out to you because this was just a summary. Um, of basic take-home messages, but I'm 10 minutes over time, so I... Um, the last paragraph here. Transformational effect on well- personal health and wellbeing, health economics and national productivity. It'll identify individual risk of adverse drug reactions, quickly diagnose inherited diseases, reduce the incidence of uh, those diseases, uh, consigning the NDIS to a largely legacy scheme and uh, affect our management, mitigation and treatment of many common diseases. Now, I know what you're thinking, what about life insurance? And um, uh, we, we're in uh, discussions with one of the countries and world's biggest life insurance companies. I can tell you that they have accepted our proposition. They've got their actuaries working on this. Because if you believe this, and we do and they do, it should reduce your life insurance, not increase it. So they're looking at the possibility, and this has already been mooted in the United States as well, of offering life insurance at a reduced premium with a promise of no penalty for genetic risk if you have your genome sequence. Because if I say you're at high risk for colon cancer and you know it and the company knows it, then you're not going to die of colon cancer. You might die of something else, but because you'll be screened regularly and you'll be surgically treated before it becomes metastatic. So the dynamics of this are almost totally the opposite of what people think. In any case, the Canadian government has just legislated against genetic discrimination of any sort, including in life insurance, and I think that'll be the same here. But I've said to the life insurance companies, why don't you get ahead of the curve for once, And announce this because you imagine the the impact it would have if an insurance company says we'll give you cheaper insurance and promise no penalty for genetic risk if you work with us to optimise your health journey. I think there's a good chance that the life insurance companies may take over, roll over the private health insurance companies. Because the model for the private health insurance companies is the payment for service at the point of crisis. The model for the life insurance companies is to keep you happy and healthy well, healthy at least, for as long as possible. So I think the social dynamics, we have to sit back and think about this. Just like all revolutions, it, it does things we didn't expect. I'll flick through that and say, just acknowledge all the people who've contributed to this and the people that plundered us, New South Wales Health, the Research Foundation, Cancer Council and others, and just to thank these extraordinary individuals, including especially the one in the middle in the white shirt, who's um, uh, a Kiwi Australian called Marcel Dinger. is just a genius. I hope you've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Yeah. Okay.
1: Happy to take questions. So,
0: thank you very much, John. Thanks, Norman. You spoke about
1: the advances, such as the ability to diagnose trisomy. Um, in uh, fetal blood in maternal circulation. Mm -hmm. And you then spoke glowingly about the prospect of being able to do the whole genome. What you didn't seem to address is the fact that many of these diseases are polygenic with variable penetrance. And so what happens when you then get a a, a, a fetus that's got a a 70% chance of bipolar disease or an 80% chance of alcoholic tendencies? We already refuse liver transplants to people with cirrhosis Mm. on the basis of ongoing alcoholism, you Mm. could argue that alcoholism is just a genetic disease. What are you going to do with this this group? So um, there's
2: several important and interesting, important issues you raise. I I think I'll just start with saying I I had a long discussion a few years ago with the judges of the uh, uh, Supreme Court here in New South Wales about the genetic components of criminality, which... And uh, the view they came to, which I think as always was fairly wise, was that uh, genetic predisposition, say to, to uh, addiction, uh, uh, is, uh, is not a factor in culpability, but it is a factor, a mitigating factor perhaps in, in, in penalty. So uh, to answer your question more specifically, uh, I'm not for one second av- advocating that prenatal screening should be used um, in the way that you're suggesting. Even for a serious monogenic disease, I think thre- they should be done preconception. I could parody it by saying, you know, sex is fun, but reproduction is serious business. So if you're at risk for cystic fibrosis as a couple, we think you should go to IVF. And even though that's pricey, it's cheaper for you and the health system to do it that way. So I'm not... nobody in their right mind wants to terminate a pregnancy. When you've got polygenic factors involved, no, it's, it's, it's too vague anyway. And, uh, but, but on the good side, once we understand what those factors are and how they intersect with the environment, um, and I'll give you another good example, which is actually my shock uh, discovered me, people with ankylosing spondylitis have a, a particular allele in their haplotyping system called uh, B27. So 100% of, or almost 100% of people with that condition have that allele, but only a small proportion of people with the allele have that own condition, and I have that allele. So there's something else out there. It could be a viral infection or something that tips people at risk into that state. But once you understand the genetic risks and then can isolate complementary the environmental risks, then you're in a very good position to mitigate the the incidence of that intersection or the problems that come from it. So I think the the wellness will come from a better understanding of the genetic and non-genetic components that play into these complex diseases rather than, you know, uh, thinking about the child. So I, I, I just don't think it'll be socially acceptable, but uh, and I don't think it'll happen. I think it's practical.
1: Were
0: you full testing
2: of the No, I said it's possible. I said it's possible. And I, that was the, the, the imp in me because you can actually predict what the child might look like as an adult from that information. But I don't think anybody's going to terminate a pregnancy on that basis. And I, I just really think that we can avoid most of the genetic serious genetic disabilities by, by preconception screening rather than prenatal screening. So you exactly think in terms of high uh cost medicine
1: and the are constantly trying to cover that. So if you've got a uh an eighty percent chance of breast cancer
2: disability positive that you're not gonna end up with governments then using this data to say, well, okay you're not going I don't think so. I mean uh... You know, in this room, who would support government penalising somebody because they're at high risk of breast cancer? And I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a realistic scenario. I think we'll just be able to anticipate and avoid the worst consequences of our genetic frailties in the future. And that's as far as I would go with it, honestly. I mean, you, there's all sorts of attitudes to this. I'm, I'm, I'm libertarian at heart, but I, I basically think that if we know what's wrong with us, or potentially wrong, or potentially wrong with our kids, we are going to to avoid those problems. Uh, I, I for one, don't want want to see terminations. I'd rather see preconception screening adopted. Mm. Thank you very much for that talk. Um, You make a very strong case for us all, a business case, really, for, for us having our own genomes examined, and you can make exactly the same case for vaccination. Uh, and, and it's just as strong, but there are people in the population who resist it. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether you've looked at just how resistant the population might be to have their genome examined. Um, I'd like to comment on vaccination, but I'll, I'll answer the question first. I, I, um, I don't think anybody should be forced to do anything unless there is a strong case for the public good, which there is in vaccination. But the authorities, I think, are handling that problem badly and I'll come back to that in a moment. Most people... And I was on the Federal Ethics Committee for six years, two terms, and with the philosophers and the uh, religious leaders, etc. And uh, we discussed these things a lot, but in the end, people will act mainly in their own self-interest. If they're, you're sick or your mum's sick or your daughter's sick, you know, you, you'll, you, you're not too worried about ideology. It's just practicality is the important thing, and I think people should be free to choose whether they have their genome sequence or not. I don't think it should be. I don't think it will be. I don't think it could be compulsory. So, not having the genome sequence does not affect other people in the way that not having uh, children vaccinated does, because the, of the herd immunity issue. So, I don't think there's a strong case for forcing people at all. I don't think it will happen. So. I think the uptake will be high because the value proposition will be so high in terms of uh, personal health. And the system will encourage it because it'll mean the health system will be more efficiently managed. With vaccination, uh, there are some, the main reason why people don't do it is because they're scared of adverse reactions. And the system, I think, you know, harumps about this. But in fact, they're right. They're right that adverse reactions happen. Uh, you can give one in a million kids a polio vaccination they will die of uh, the polio. And the reason is because they have immune deficiencies it means they can't deal with what is an attenuated virus so the rest of us would laugh off. It tickles the immune system, makes us protected. There are other kids that have very... Um, uh, have genetically determined inflammatory reactions so they get a, a bacterial vaccine and they have a serious inflammatory reaction which can tip them because they're already predisposed into epilepsy. Now, there's, there's a lot of rubbish out there but there are, in fact adverse reactions to vaccinations. Now, the, the argument should be this, first of all. These adverse reactions are very rare, and one in a million people, kids dying, as tragic as that is from a polio vaccine, is much better than one in a thousand dying from polio. By the way, it's a good movie showing down here at Christmas called Breathe about uh, a guy that got polio and couldn't do anything but breathe. Saw it last night, pre-screening. Recommend it. So, so the case to make the public is that... Um, your choice, in a way, or we shouldn't be... One in a thousand dying from polio or many more being disabled, like they used to be when I was a kid, walking around in calipers, or the risk that one in a million child are going to die. So it's tragic for the family if they're the one in a million, but it's better for the community that you don't have one in a thousand kids dying. I reckon in five or ten years' time, we discuss this with the immunologists, that we'll be able to predict with some accuracy which kids are going to have an adverse reaction to vaccinations because of an immunological defect, which we identify, or um, an inflammatory issue, which is related. And then we can actually advise those families and their treating physicians that child should not have a vaccine. Uh, And then the other families will be better assured that the children are unlikely to suffer a bad reaction and we should be back in the right space. But I do believe in being honest with the public. You can't pretend there are not adverse reactions to vaccinations, there are, but they're very rare. Oh, that's getting a bit serious. Oh, I was trying to make a happy stories. And...
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Thank you. You've, you've given a fantastic presentation about the impact of this on personal health and what I would call the, the sickness system rather than the healthcare system. But could you have some, something to say about um, uh, the public health implications and epigenetic uh, information? You mentioned adverse reactions to drugs. What about? different types of reactions to various diets and, and foods and public health and epigenetic implications of that? Sure. Um, well, I think that generally there's a lot of implication in public health because the system will know who should be treated what way, and so the use of public, even the conventional drugs and things, will be much more efficient. You won't have the adverse reactions, if we're using the right drugs at the right doses. Epigenetics uh, is, uh, is the basically secondary genetic information that's accumulated during your lifetime. And uh, it's early days yet, so we haven't been able to connect that very much to health outcomes, although it does predict age, uh, ageing. The same with the microbiome in our gut. here's another fun fact. We actually have more bacterial cells in our body than we do human cells. Uh, and we, we, um, we set some of them free uh, every day when we go to the bathroom. So, <laughs> an awful lot of them. Uh, So we're still exploring how the microbiome uh, is affecting our health, but there's actually compelling evidence that the structure of the microbiome can affect even our mental conditions. So we've got a long way to go, but the more we understand, the more we can use that information productively. But i just add a little quick teaser on this. Um, There's now very compelling evidence in plants, and pretty good in animals, it's harder to do in animals, that there is actually epigenetic inheritance from generation to generation. And that means that we're not just hardwired in the AGCT sense, but we are inheriting some parts of the experience of our ancestors. And there are a couple of experiments reported in very good journals with very good controls where mice have been exposed, this is just an example now, to what's called fear conditioning where they get a puff of perfume or a bell gets rung and then something nasty happens to them like a cold shock on their feet. I mean, ethics says you can't you know, do, be too rough. but so, so these uh, mice learn very quickly when the bell rings that something is going to happen to them because that's what they correlate. And these experiments are showing that three and four generations later in the male germline, so they've only ever been sperm transferred from generation to generation, you ring the bell or puff the perfume to the great-grandchildren they go like this. That's, uh, that's uh, interesting stuff. So we've got a lot to learn. And, and perhaps my Parting comment, because I know that I think Arthur would like to wrap up, is uh, my view um, is that most of what's in the textbooks is more informed by preconception than it is by evidence, and that much of what we think about human biology comes from mechanical preconceptions of the 50s and 60s post-industrial age, and that we need to be much more open-minded about letting the facts speak to us about what, really, what it really is that makes us human. But we're starting to get under the hood, and I think genomics at population scale will take us a long way down that track. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.